Okay, everyone, it's a pleasure to see you uh, here this morning. It's great to see the bleachers all rammed at the back there. Um, I hope you've been enjoying this series in Kings that we're running through here. Um, as you know, the way that we're doing this is that Rod and I are going backwards and forwards each week between uh, the two campuses. So hopefully, if it's working out and no one said that it isn't, um, your experience is that you're getting all this sequentially. Is that happening? Or you had any duplicates yet? We're, we're hoping that you haven't. Um, so anyway, that's the way we're doing it. But at, th- at this point in the game, this is the, this, the, uh, uh, the point in the series where it's all going to go horribly wrong because um, Rod is away for the next two weeks, uh, floating away somewhere on, on a spring break cruise. Um, and uh, that means that we need to just uh, think again because if I plow into the next king in the series here, we're going to get all out of sequence and that really wouldn't do. So um, what we're going to do is Matt Westerholm is taking Rod's slot uh, and he's got a message that's been brewing for a while from John chapter 6. So that's going to be kind of a one-off. He's doing that on the east side today. He's going to bring that here next week. Um, and then what I thought I would do is I'd try and keep us kind of in the groove uh, with this world of the kings. But in order not to mess up the series of the stories, um, what I thought I'd do is try and bring you something from the same kind of historical period, but coming at it from a bit of a different angle here. So um, if you picture our King series as a, a DVD box set, um, then today is going to be like the, the bonus features, um, not strictly part of the main plot, um, but hopefully you'll enjoy it nonetheless, and it'll shed a bit of extra light on uh, these kings and what they're all about. So for one week only, um, we're going to be hitting the book of Jonah. Um, you might ask why. Um, well, we're going to go to the screen here. I can try and show you why. Um, might help if someone just flips the lights down uh, there at the back just to um, thanks Brad um, this is the diagram that we had up last time when we were working with Ahab just a quick kind of insight into the timeline and you'll remember the way that this whole thing is set up at the beginning of the story of the kings of Israel we have the kings united uh, reigning over a united kingdom Saul, David and Solomon represented there by the blue And then after Solomon, the whole thing divides into two pieces, the northern kingdom called Israel and then the southern kingdom called Judah. And we've been following some of those kings along. We hit Jeroboam on the north side, Ahab on the north side. Now, uh, the good thing about this diagram is that it's almost readable. Um, The bad thing about this diagram is that it only covers the first 60 years of the deal. If you put it in uh, the real terms, it looks like that. Now, I know you can't read any of that anymore, and that's fine. Uh, but that's the diagram I just showed you shrunk onto a timeline that shows the entirety of all the kings of Israel. And this is what the thing looks like in its true horror. Um, what I want you to be able to see is it's kind of going to the same place for both of them, right? The northern kingdom is heading into exile. The date up at the top there is about 720 BC. Uh, and then uh, the southern kingdom heads into exile as well in about... Uh, 580 BC. So that's where we're headed. If anybody really wants to be able to see what's going on in that diagram, I'd be really happy to email it to you. So um, just uh, uh, come and nudge me afterwards if you want to see it all. Anyway, just to pull out some of the highlights here, Jeroboam we hit, Ahab we hit, Rod hit Hezekiah with you guys last week. And what we're going to be doing as we move on now through our series is we're really going to be following on after Hezekiah, following that southern line. So we're going to do a bunch of kings there on their way to exile. But all of that leaves a question kind of hanging, doesn't it? Uh, What is it that happened to the northern kingdom after Ahab? That's the last time that we're going to see him, uh, see the northern kingdom in this series. So what I thought I would do is drop into Jonah today because Jonah lives uh, right here uh, in the reign of Jeroboam II. And what we're going to find as we plow into the story of Jonah um, is that uh, he his life gives us a really kind of useful, valuable glimpse into the state and fate of the northern kingdom and kind of shows us how they got to where they got to. So that's the reason we're going to be in Jonah today. So everybody cool with that? No dissenting voices. Okay, good. So um, let's have the lights up. Stand with me. um, And we're going to read from Jonah chapter one. Now, this isn't the easiest book in the Bible to find. Um, If you have one of our blue church Bibles, you need to be on page 654. Uh, But if not, just open up your Bible kind of halfway through uh, and then flip past the big guys. Um, So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, uh, and then past the first five of the small guys, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah, and Jonah will be right there, just kind of poking in there. All right, 
So this is Jonah chapter 1. Starting at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we won't perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? So he answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them that. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to the land, but they couldn't because the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Okay, that's our text for this morning. So take your seats, and we'll pray as we begin here. God in heaven, we just thank you so much for giving us this amazing text from the Bible. We thank you for this book. We pray that you would just open our eyes to it here. Holy Spirit, as you caused it to be written, as you locked up here, truths for our encouragement. We pray that you would be present with each one of us, that you would be near us, just making us attentive, opening the ears and eyes of our hearts so that we might hear and see and be changed. We pray that for Jesus' glory. Amen. All right. So for most of us, this is quite a well-known story, right? This is um, uh, uh, beginner's Bible uh, territory. Um, so we know that Jonah was the, uh, the reluctant prophet the guy who was called to take the message of God's mercy to the capital city of Israel's arch enemy, Assyria, and who refused to go and ended up having an unexpected meeting with a whale. Um, Sadly for the whale, we kind of stopped reading just at the point where he was ready to come onto the stage. Poor whale. Um, Anyway, (laughs) um, that's pretty much right, if that's our understanding of it. The Assyrians certainly were the up-and-coming empire of the time. And Jonah's reaction to this task that he's given uh, tells us that the Israelites certainly didn't like them too much. But uh, the whole arch enemy thing is probably pushing it a little bit, um, certainly at this stage uh, in the story. Um, Assyria was definitely going to get there. Uh, What we find is that it's the Assyrians in the end who are responsible for that exile of the northern kingdom. They come and eat the northern kingdom alive and they disappear from the face of history. But in the point of the story where we join it with Jonah, they haven't really had much of a negative impact on Israel just yet. In fact, just before this, when Ahab was on the throne, you remember, um, he actually made an alliance with the Assyrians. Um, He wanted to uh, get cozy with them to try and defend himself against the enemy who they were really concerned about, which was um, the Arameans. Now, let's see that on the map here. So, move on from our complicated diagram. Okay, here's a map of the Eastern Mediterranean. Gives us a rough idea of what's going on. Here's Jerusalem. Um, and uh, here's Nineveh. And you can see it's actually marked over there. But this is Assyria. 
this kind of big area over here on the right. And this is Israel. Um, and in between them was this nation of Aram. And they were the people who were really giving Israel all the trouble uh, at Jonah's kind of period of history. So the Israelites and the Arameans were constantly dogging it out. The reason why Ahab made an alliance with the Assyrians is kind of obvious when you see it on the map. He thought to himself, hey, if I can keep the Arameans busy on their eastern side, maybe they won't be so busy on the western side and maybe they'll leave us alone. So uh, Ahab sent them soldiers and horses and all sorts of stuff just to try and get the Arameans off his case. Now, um, later on, of course, we discover that making an alliance with the uh, Assyrians and encouraging them, them to fight the Arameans was a really bad plan, uh, like pretty much everything else that Ahab decided to do. Uh, the Assyrians ended up not just fighting the Arameans, but eating them for breakfast. Uh, and then the Assyrians ended up just being this enormous empire now camped right on Israel's doorstep, with Israel, this thin strip of land, being the only thing that was preventing them from getting to the ocean. And that was the one thing they really wanted to do in order to secure their dominance of the region. So it's pretty much inevitable from that point on what's going to happen, that the Assyrians are going to come and they're going to try and take Israel's uh, land and territory away as well. Okay, but all of that stuff comes later on. At this stage, all that we need to know is that the uh, Assyrians are um, uh, kind of out there somewhere to the east. All the Israelites know about them is that they're uh, kind of, they've got a rumor of them. They're, they're powerful. Uh, they're godless. They're somewhere kind of over there growing in strength. Um, I had a joke with the 20-somethings group this week about this. Um, it's uh, maybe a bit like that line from the beginning of The Lord of the Rings, you know, where the, the narrator comes in and they were kind of flying over the mountains and she says, darkness crept back into the forest of the world. Rumor grew of a shadow in the east, whispers of a nameless fear. That's all they knew. Um, but I promised that I wouldn't go to Lord of the Rings too often again, didn't I? So I think we'll just drop that one there. Um, the thing that we really need to concentrate on is just the fact that Jonah, he's a prophet, and that he's been called to God to go to these people. Uh, however much he knows about them, uh, he's been sent to go and confront them uh, with the sins that God sees in their lives and in their nation. And that's striking, isn't it? Because Israel is the micro-nation here, and Assyria is the superpower. Uh, most people in Assyria probably didn't even realize that Israel existed. And yet God called Jonah to go to them and tell them that his God was going to call them to account. Now today, of course, we know that uh, that's what the God of the Bible is all about, right? We know that God is claiming the allegiance of the whole world. Maybe we know that too well uh, because we uh, kind of get a little bit uh, dumbed to the, uh, the severity, the seriousness, the boldness of that claim. He claims the allegiance of every single one of us. He says to us, I'm not just a God. I'm the God. I'm the person who made you and who sustains you. I demand your attention. But at this point in the story, the Assyrians didn't know that uh, because the people of Israel had done a really bad job of letting anybody else know. They'd been called to be a city on a hill, uh, to be a light to all the nations around them, pointing them to this great God that they served. But ever since Solomon's death, they've been doing a really bad job of it. So we could see maybe, can't we, why this is such a tough assignment for Jonah to be given. I wonder whether we can think of a parallel here. Imagine that you work for, let's say, a small software company somewhere here in Grand Rapids, and I'm your boss, and I call you into my office one morning, and I say, okay, uh, today I'm going to stick you on a plane and send you out to California to the head offices of Google with the following message. 40 more days, and we are going to take you down. Whew. Okay. <laughs> that would be a kind of tough assignment to be given, wouldn't it? Well, that's a little bit like what Jonah's being asked to do here. But, like it or not, that's what prophets in the Old Testament are called to do. Do you remember? Prophets are come into the story in order to bring God's opinions, however unlikely they seem. So, uh, if Jonah was really doing his job, it shouldn't have really mattered what he thought of this announcement of judgment that God was going to bring on the Assyrians. It shouldn't have mattered whether he liked the message or not, uh, because prophets are there simply to do what God says and to say, what God says. But this prophet refused. You might remember from our Ahab message uh, the way that God makes these prophetic calls. In verse 2 of the chapter we read, he said to Jonah uh, in the Hebrew, kum lech, which means get up and go. Get up and go to Nineveh. 
But in verse 3, we get Jonah's response, where we're told that instead of cum laking, he cum a cold. It means he got up and ran in the opposite direction as far as he could go. <laughs> and we can see that on the map as well. So let's just kind of pop that on here, if we clear off those. Uh, you know that Jonah's being called to go here. Uh, he actually goes down from his home in the northern kingdom to Joppa there. Sorry, let's just actually get that right. Right, Nineveh. Deary me, come on, Neil. Um, Joppa. And Jonah goes this way. Uh, Tarshish is probably in southern Spain, uh, almost beyond the end of the known world. So Jonah sees where he's being asked to go, and he tries to drop himself off the map, uh, going to the other point of the compass. But like all these stories in the Old Testament, we kind of see this. We see the history. We see something of the geography. Uh, we see that Jonah's being very rebellious, but it still leaves the question, doesn't it? Hey, what are we supposed to do with this? Why is this in the Bible for our benefit? Well, what I want to do with this message is uh, show us that actually, although we're in a different kind of genre here, the lessons that we've been learning with the kings are still going to provide us with the answer that we're looking for, even though we're not actually reading about a king here. See, over the last few weeks, we've been getting familiar with this idea, haven't we, that kings are representative characters. And when they're playing that representative role, when they're leading or fighting on behalf of their people, they're pointing us to the two different representatives under which we can stand. We can stand under Adam and be represented by him, or we can stand under Jesus and be represented by him. So to the extent that the individual kings are good, they point us forwards to everything that Jesus is and backwards to everything that Adam isn't. So when we read about David meeting and overcoming Goliath on the behalf of his people, we found that he was pointing us forwards to Jesus and helping us understand how David, how, sorry, how Jesus met and overcame evil on our behalf. And when we read about David's gratitude to God for his role as king and his repentant heart, uh, we were reminded, weren't we, that Adam had none of those qualities. So good kings point us forwards to what Jesus is and backwards to what Adam isn't. And then with the bad kings, we found that it was just the same, but the other way around. Uh, so to the extent that any king is bad, he points us forwards to everything that Jesus isn't and backwards to everything that Adam is. So when we read about Ahab's self-centeredness and unpredictability, we found that he was pointing us forwards to what Jesus isn't and highlighting what a wonderful thing it is that we have a king over our lives who is not like Ahab. And then when we read about Ahab abdicating his responsibilities and just letting life kind of happen to him, being passive, we saw how that pointed us back to Adam, didn't we? So bad kings point us forwards to what Jesus isn't and backwards to what Adam is. Well, now what we're going to find with Jonah is that those same lessons serve us really well in terms of understanding his life. You see, in the Old Testament, the kings are not the only representative characters. In this phase of the story, we have three different kinds of representatives in play all at once. We have prophets, priests, and kings. And all three of them behave the same way in terms of how we're supposed to read them. The kings point us to the ultimate king. The prophets point us to the ultimate prophet. The priests point us to the ultimate priest. And that's what's happening here in Jonah. Jonah's a prophet. So he's a representative character in the story. He's not primarily here to show me me. Like the kings, he's here to point me forwards to Jesus and backwards to Adam. And in this part of the story... Because he's behaving badly, he points me forwards to everything that Jesus isn't and backwards to everything that Adam is. So in this part of the story, Jonah kind of provides us with a picture of what it looks like to choose Adam instead of Jesus as our kind of prophets, as the person who's speaking into our lives. And what the author of the book wants us to see is just that's the choice that the northern kingdom was making. And that kind of explains what's just about to happen to them. So let's see, let's walk that through now and see that kind of uh, at a slower pace as we actually go through the book. The first clue that we get comes from the very first line that we read uh, when we saw Jonah's name. That word Jonah uh, in Hebrew means dove. 
And Dove is one of the nicknames that God regularly uses for his people throughout the Old Testament. So in Psalm 68, God describes his people as Jonah, as a dove, escaping with the plunder of their enemies. In Psalm 74, the writer says, Don't hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts. Don't forget the lives of your afflicted people forever. So God's people and a dove kind of compared and used, uh, the dove used to illustrate them. So when we read the opening line of our chapter, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, get up and go to Nineveh, uh, the great city, and cry against it. We can equally read that the word of the Lord came to his people Israel, saying, get up and go to Nineveh and cry against it. And that parallel runs all the way through the book. Jonah provides this perfect picture of this kind of Adam-like life that the people in the northern kingdom had chosen. Just think about that with me for a minute. Think about everything uh, that God had called his people to be. First, they'd been called to be God's special people. But what happened? They'd refused to be known as his. Like Adam and Eve, they said, we want to be our own people, thanks very much. Uh, We don't want God cramping our style. And the result was that they did pretty much everything in their power to disassociate themselves. From God. They were ashamed of him. They wouldn't stand up and be counted as believers. And Jonah really epitomizes that, doesn't he? The whole message of the chapter we read is that Jonah is running away from God as fast as he can. He doesn't want to be God's prophet. He doesn't want to bear God's name. Second, Israel had been called to live in God's special place. But what happened to that? Well, they'd done everything they could to undermine it. Like Adam and Eve, they fought against each other instead of confronting their enemies. They divided the land into two separate nations. They made alliances with their neighbors instead of trusting in God to help them. And the result of all of this is that they're now hanging right over the edge of exile, just about to fall into it. And do we see any of that in Jonah? Yes, we do. You couldn't have a clearer picture of disobedience leading to exile than Jonah's own life. He's exiling himself from Israel, isn't he? He's heading for Spain as far as he can get from God's presence. Third, Israel had been called to live under God's blessing. God wanted them to know his presence with them and his rule over them. But just like Adam and Eve, Israel had rejected that too. Do you remember that great symbol of God's presence in the land, the temple? That was God's street address among his people, wasn't it? But when the kingdom split in two, the northern kingdom cut themselves off from the temple and from Jerusalem. They put a military front line between themselves and that place that they needed to get to. So they couldn't reach it even if they wanted to. And they rejected God's rule. That was the sin of Jeroboam, wasn't it? Refusing to worship God the way that God himself says he wants to be worshipped. The northern kingdom was all about my way, not God's way. And we see all of that in Jonah too. The, uh, the, uh, uh, the Hebrew in verse 3 of our chapter tells us uh, literally Jonah was uh, fleeing from before the face of Yahweh. You can't get a more radical rejection of God's presence than that, can you? To be in the presence of God and just turn your back on him and go the other way. And then would he submit to God's rule? No, that's what the whole get up and go thing is about. God says get up and go, that's his rule for Jonah. Jonah gets up and flees. So just like Adam and Eve, Jonah and the whole nation of Israel, whose stories are bound so closely together, rejected all the individual pieces of this kingdom that God is so passionate about. They didn't want to be God's people. They didn't think much of living in God's place. They didn't really value God's blessings. And the result was what? Well, if we've been kind of staying the course with this King series, we know the answer, don't we? If we just get this up on the screen here. Here it comes. When we have all those pieces of the kingdom of God together, God's people in God's place, experiencing his blessing, the necessary result is blessing to the world. When those things come together, blessing others is always the outcome. That's what God is about. His kingdom is never an end in itself. God wants us, he wants to bless us in order that we can bless others. Does that make sense? So if we reject his kingdom, 
And if we don't want to be God's people, if we don't want to live in his place, if we don't think much of his blessings, well, the result is that we won't bless anybody. In fact, we can't bless anybody. And Jonah couldn't be a better illustration of that. You see, Jonah knew what it was uh, he was a... Uh, what it was that God intended here in this story. If you later on maybe read through the rest of the book, it's um, a fun story to get right through. Um, In chapter four, Jonah tells us straight out his motivation. He says it wasn't the thought of going to the Assyrians and uh, uh, the fear of it uh, that was dissuading him from going. Uh, It wasn't the the difficulty of the task so much. Jonah was concerned about going and uh, the possibility that God might forgive them. That was the thing that Jonah really didn't want to happen. He says to uh, God, I knew that you were a compassionate God. I knew that you were slow to anger and abounding in love. And that's the reason I fled, because I knew you'd do this. I knew that you would announce judgment against them and then forgive them. And Jonah couldn't bring himself to entertain the idea that uh, these godless people, his, his neighbors, might actually be rescued. He didn't want it to happen. And Israel had exactly the same attitude. Go back to Deuteronomy. We're told... um, Uh, that uh, God said to his people, if you follow my laws, uh, you'll show the nations around you uh, your wisdom and your understanding and your neighbors will be drawn towards me. They'll want to come and get to know me. In 1 Kings, we're told that uh, people uh, from other nations, foreigners, will be drawn to God's temple and that they come and pray there and hear um, about God and take back the news of his love and goodness to their own people. But what actually happened was that Israel just kind of played the Jonah card. They didn't want to be part of God's kingdom, and so they didn't have anything to give. They had nothing to share with their neighbors. So what does God want us to learn from this kind of mess? Well, I think the answer is by giving us this bird's-eye view of Jonah's mistakes and Israel's mistakes and how they totally failed to be any kind of blessing to their neighbors. I think what God is doing is he's showing us how we can avoid those mistakes ourselves. He's showing us how we can be a blessing to our neighbors. And we want that, don't we? I know I do. That's kind of what we're signed up for here as a community. That's what Crossroads is about. We don't want just knowing God and coming and worshiping him to be an end in itself. Uh, We want to be out there on our street corners serving and helping people, taking the good news of Jesus into our communities. And this text gives us the practical pieces of that puzzle What does it actually look like to be the kind of people who are a blessing to our neighbors? Well, it looks like being the kind of people who embrace and delight in the components of this great kingdom that God wants to build in us and through us. So the first piece is, unlike Jonah, not being ashamed to be known as God's people. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get tempted to think that the uh, the way that I can be a blessing to my street corner is just to kind of water that stuff down a little bit. Uh, just to not be too explicit about this God that I serve and who he is and what he really stands for. So I have this one neighbor in particular, in particular um, the guy that I've been spending quite a bit of time with over recent months just up our street. And um, it's funny, when the conversation gets to that point where we're talking about spiritual things, I just feel tempted to kind of soft pedal that a little bit. Um, because I fear that if I just get a bit too bold and say, okay, look, this is who my God is. This is what he really stands for. Uh, This is what he thinks you really need, that that's going to push this guy away. But the lesson from this text is just the opposite, isn't it? It's Jonah's unwillingness to be known as a follower of God that makes him useless. It's the fact that he won't stand up and say, yes, that this God, even though he has this crazy idea of extending mercy to the Assyrians, he's still my God. I'm prepared to go where he wants me to go, and I'm prepared to be known as his. That's the thing that holds Jonah back, his unwillingness to be bold. And I think that's kind of liberating for us because it spares us the whole kind of paranoia of how much about God should I or shouldn't I say. You know, we just need to be prepared to be known as his. Uh, We need to come to God and bring our fear and our shame to him in prayer. He already knows all of that stuff. Uh, And then just step out asking that his Holy Spirit would work in us a little bit more boldness just be prepared just to be prepared to say what he says uh, and be known as his the next thing to learn from jonah is that we need if we want to be a blessing to others we need to stop putting ourselves in voluntary exile from the place where god's blessing can be found 
For Jonah, it was the land of Israel. That was the good news that he had to share with the Ninevites, that there was a place on earth uh, where people could meet and do business with God. But instead of sharing that fact with others, he was just busy running away from it, wasn't he? And shame on me, I do that too. I don't know whether you can relate to this. I have all sorts of plans for how I might be useful serving God in my neighborhood or in uh, the world that he's placed me in. Um, But even while I'm planning and kind of busy running around doing that stuff, I find myself wandering away from the place where God's blessing can be found in my life right now. So I'm kind of busy like a headless chicken going from place to place making all these plans. And then I just look at myself and think, hey, I need to really just... uh, Think about this. I'm, I'm leaving behind the thing that I most need to prioritize, just daily time alone with Jesus. That's the place where I can uh, just really find him. Um, and often my busyness just kind of pushes that down to the bottom of the agenda. And when that happens, I just need to look at myself and say, look, come on, Neil. How do you expect to be a blessing to others if you aren't in the place where you're going to receive God's blessing yourself? And then there's a final lesson from Jonah, isn't there? That we need to embrace God's presence and God's rule over us if we really want to be useful to other people. As Christians, we have God's presence inside us every moment. The Holy Spirit, amazingly, has made his home in each one of our lives. And God rules over our lives through his words. That's the Bible that we have in our hands right now. But neither of these things will do us or anyone any good at all if we play the Jonah card and just neglect them. We need to be attentive and responsive to what the Spirit is saying to us through the Word if we want to pass on anything that's really life-giving or lasting to other people. So if God has got his finger on us with something, maybe he's got some specific way that he's put in your mind that you can be a better servant to your spouse or a way that you can honor Jesus better at work, or a way that you can pray more intentionally for your friends or for your children. If we're resisting that, if we're kind of just ignoring that and just pushing that to one side, we need to understand that we won't be the blessing that we want to be to other people because we're tying our own hands behind our back. We're kind of resisting God's blessing in our lives, saying, thanks for your presence and your rule, God, but actually, I think I really prefer my own presence and my own rule. But if we do get after that stuff, even if it might feel kind of irrelevant to the bigger questions of how we're going to be useful with the whole path of our lives, well, it actually lays the foundation for blessing other people. If we make it a habit to get up and go whenever God says get up and go, even if it's just in the little things, we won't find ourselves running in the opposite direction when God presents us with an opportunity to be useful like he did with Jonah. So that's the lesson from Jonah kind of as Adam Jonah becomes a living list of things for us to avoid if we want to be a blessing to other people. But just as we've been discovering with the kings, there's more here for us in Jonah because even in his disobedience, he doesn't only point us backwards to Adam. He also points us forwards to Jesus. Just like the bad kings provide us with some wonderful ways into worshipping the ultimate king, bad prophets provide us with some wonderful ways into worshipping the ultimate prophet. So let's think about some of those truths here and use them as ways into worship for us. First of all, think about the fact that Jesus uh, isn't repulsed by his enemies like Jonah was. We all know the story here, don't we? The reason that Jonah wouldn't go to Nineveh was that he was outraged by the godlessness and the immorality of the people who lived there. And he had a point. History tells us that the Assyrians were kind of unpleasant. They were merciless. They were arrogant. They were completely unmoved by the suffering that they inflicted on other people. And Jonah couldn't bring himself to even entertain the possibility that God might be merciful to them. But the really amazing thing about the story is that God could. In fact, that's one of the most amazing paradoxes of the whole Bible, isn't it? that the God who is so holy that human beings cannot see him and live is also the God who is drawn towards his enemies, that his heart goes out to them. He loves the unlovely. He sees all the wreckage, all the pain that they inflict, all the pain that they experience inside, 
and he's just drawn towards it. He moves towards that. And that's relevant to us because that is us. Many of us know that all too well, I suppose. We look at ourselves and we see the personal equivalent of Assyria inside. We see incidents in our past, maybe, or we see threads in our character that much though we want to see them kind of cut off, keep coming back onto the surface of the fabric. And we realize how unlovely we must seem to God. But it's true even if you don't realize it. Uh, we'll just have a little diagram here to try and I'll show you how my kind of weird brain thinks about this stuff. Um, I guess I think about it like this. I'm, I'm tempted to, to draw these kind of moral axes. And I, I have up here, good. Uh, and down at the bottom here, bad. And in my kind of naivety, I think to myself, hey, I'm kind of doing all right, somewhere kind of top middle-ish. And um, I can kind of verify that because I, there are other people in my life, other, there are other people on my street even, you know, there's people that I know who are actually, you know, they're really, really good, a little bit better than me. You know, they seem to be able to muster this incredible consistency of gentleness with their children. They're always really considerate. They brought cookies around to us when we first moved in, like we've never really quite managed to get to that level. But then there are other people in our, in our neighborhood who aren't quite so great, and they're the people who just play their music a little bit too loud, and their kids leave their bikes on the sidewalk and all that kind of stuff. So I'm kind of there in the middle, and I, I'm... I, I go up and down a bit, but that's kind of what it looks like. Um, so, you know, that's our instinct, isn't it? To compare ourselves with ourselves, to compare ourselves with other people in our world. And when we do that, somebody, um, I guess probably most of us find at least some grounds for comfort. We can find at least a few people in our orbit who really aren't quite cutting it the way that we are. But what we fail to realize is that the Bible is almost completely silent on the question of how we compare to other people. Did you realize that? Look through all however many it is, 39,000 verses of it, and try and find anything that tells you that it's relevant how you compare morally to somebody else. The Bible doesn't care. The Bible is only concerned about how we compare to God. And to get a feel for that, I'm afraid we have to redraw this diagram a little bit. So let's go back to our axes here. Oh, whoops, need that bad. See, on our uh, diagram here, God is 100% utter, uh, incomparable purity. Right up here. So let's just put 100%. And if there's a zero on this line, um, then our lives are really somewhere around here. And the life of my neighbor, who's a little bit better than me, is kind of here. And the life of my neighbor, who's maybe a little bit worse than me, is kind of here, like that. Can you see that when you step back from this thing, the most relevant part of this diagram is this yawning chasm here between God and everybody, rather than any relevance of really how I compare to anybody else? And that's what God wants us to see as he thinks about and talks us to us about where we stand before him. God is so astronomically pure that the differences between us, however great they seem when we're looking kind of horizontally at the other people around us, are completely irrelevant when we start to look vertically and compare ourselves to the place where we actually come from and where ultimately we hope to return to. You know, if we want to be there with God in the end, we need to know that that chasm is our issue. That's the the gap that needs to be crossed if we're going to feel at home with God in heaven if we ever want to be there. When we compare ourselves to God then, we see that we are Nineveh to him, every single one of us. And he could so easily then have the Jonah reaction to us. He should be repelled at the sight of us. He should want to close the chapter on us. If we think about how much God has invested in humanity, how carefully each one of us has been made to know him. And then we think about how thankless we are, how recklessly we use this precious gift of life that God has given us. Shouldn't that really make an end of things? If this were a human marriage, a marriage between you know, us and God, wouldn't this be grounds for divorce? Wouldn't God be justified in saying, I'm being abused by you. I never want to see you again. That was Jonah's attitude to the Ninevites. But miraculously, that's not what we see in Jesus. Jesus knows the full extent of our selfishness, 
and our ingratitude, and yet he moves towards it. He sees what we've done. He's seen what our world has become, and yet he came to that world. He came right into the thick of it. Everything that offends him and that he hates, he moves towards it to redeem it. And it all culminates, doesn't it, with that great cry from the cross when Jesus looked out at the Jews and the Roman soldiers who were using the lives and the bodies that Jesus himself had spoken into existence to kill him. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's the kind of saviour that we worship. A saviour who loves abusers and abortionists and people who worship other gods. A saviour who loves people like us. The next striking comparison from our text is the fact that Jesus didn't hear God's call and then run in the opposite direction. We've talked quite a bit in this message about the difficulty of the mission that God gave Jonah, haven't we? It was dangerous. It was lonely. It was a call to reach out across enemy lines. But we need to understand that it was nothing, nothing compared to the call that the Father laid on the Son when he sent him into this world to be our rescuer. Jonah was sent to confront the Assyrians with their sin. But Jesus was sent into the world to bear our sin. His mission was to come and live as a man. And in spite of mockery and misunderstanding and every temptation that we face, in spite of all that, his task was to be perfect, to be holy, to keep every last stricture of the law and to earn friendship with God. He was called to keep the covenant of works, to force a way into, the heaven, into heaven by the power of a sinless life. And then on the cross to take that record of sinless perfection and exchange it for our record of disobedience and ingratitude. He came to bear the consequences of the lives that we have lived so that we could bear the consequences of the life that he lived. It's like that classic illustration, isn't it, of my life on tape. I arrive uh, at the end of my life and find myself standing before God and with me there's a kind of DVD of something of every single thing that I ever did or ever thought with my name on it. And next to me I find Jesus standing and he has a DVD with his name on it. Everything he ever did, everything he ever thought. And the message of the gospel, the mission of Jesus is he says, um, let me trade places with you. Before these tapes go in the player, why don't you take mine? And I'll take yours. Think what it cost him to do that. The consequences that he bore as a result of taking everything that you have ever done and then standing before God as if it were his own. That was Jesus' mission. And wouldn't he have just been, been justified in running from that? Just like Jonah. We're told that uh, it was hard in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he stood right on the brink of making that exchange and placing it himself in our shoes, we're told that his sweat was like drops of blood. And yet he went through with it. He picked up the cup of God's wrath that was destined for us and drained it. That's the kind of savior that we worship. And there's another comparison that's reminiscent of the Garden of Gethsemane too. Struck me as I read through this first chapter of Jonah that the author really wants us to just pay attention to what's going on with the sailors. In verse 5, after the storm blows up, we're told that the sailors prayed, each to their own God, and that they threw their cargo overboard to lighten the ship, and that can equally well be translated as them throwing offerings into the sea to appease their gods to try and lighten the force of the storm against them. So we can see that the sailors were religious, can't we? They were mistaken. Their prayers had no effect. But they were at least praying but what about Jonah? Even though he's a prophet of God, he isn't bringing the situation to God at all. When everybody else is praying, he's sleeping. And that points us forwards, doesn't it? To everything that Jesus isn't. Because in Gethsemane, Jesus prayed despite the fact that everybody else was sleeping. And that's no flash in the pan with him. One of the greatest comforts of the Christian life is the fact that Jesus is praying when we sleep, when we're sleeping physically. Isn't it good to know that at the right hand of God, Jesus is bringing our needs before the Father? Not the kind of faltering, distracted sort of praying that we bring, 
but with perfect love, compassion, submission, commitment. He stands there as a brother, knowing each of our circumstances, interceding for strength and perseverance for the next day, asking God to accomplish all his goodwill in us, to make us all that he intended us to be. But Jesus is praying for us when we're sleeping spiritually too, when we're off track, when we're driving too close to the edge. Jesus is on his knees for us. And shouldn't that itself just be motivation enough to make us wake up? Because the world doesn't have anything like that. And we need to know that. The world offers us Jonah. And if we wander away from God and we fall in, throw in our lot with the world, that's all we're going to get. When we need its help, it's asleep. It isn't God, even though we desperately want it to be God. It doesn't know what we really need. And it wouldn't care even if it did. Only Jesus has the kindness and the ability to maintain that kind of vigilance over us. And now just think about one final point of comparison here that emerges when we look at the direction of Jonah's journey. I wonder whether you noticed this starting at the beginning of verse 3. We're told that Jonah went down to Joppa. Then at the end of the verse 3, we're told that he went down again into the ship. Then in verse 5, we're told he went down further still into the innermost parts of the ship. And then at the end of the chapter, we're told he went down all the way into the water. Down, 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 down. And that's not dissimilar with Jesus, is it? In Philippians, Paul tells us that although Jesus was God, he was willing to forego the use of that power to his own advantage. That he made himself nothing. That he took the very nature of a servant. And that he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Down, 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 down. But look at the incredible difference between those two downward journeys. Jonah went down because he made bad choices. Like the northern kingdom, his life was headed for the abyss. It was a hopeless descent, a death spiral. Jonah's going down in flames here in our chapter. But when Jesus went down, it couldn't be more different, could it? Jesus went down voluntarily to serve. Jesus went down to lift others up. His descent was full of hope. And as our representative, if we make him our representative, his hopeful descent gives us hope when we descend. Going down doesn't have to be a Jonah experience for us. If Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king, the way down becomes the way up. Illness, unemployment, bereavement, moral failure, all of them have to bow the knee to Jesus if he is our representative. Without him, they can tip us over the edge into free fall. But with him, things are different. Jesus steps into that stuff and he arm wrestles blessing out of it. He will not be resisted. All things must work together for the good of those who love him if Jesus is in control of our lives because he has the power to command them as their maker. That's the kind of saviour that we worship. And that's where we're going to end things here. I'm going to ask Greg to bring the band back up just as we finish, because it just seems to me natural that we should just go straight out of what we're talking about here into just giving Jesus our praise. There's obviously so much more in this passage that we could look at. Uh, When we read it closely, we find that uh, Jonah isn't just the bad guy in this chapter. It kind of changes a little bit as we move from the beginning of the chapter to the end. The tables start to turn. In verse 5, we find the sailors calling out each to their own God, don't we? But then by the time we reach verse 14, we find that they're crying out to the Lord. Something happens that points them forwards to who Jesus is. But what we're going to do is Rod is actually going to pick this chapter back up again on Easter Day to bring you that stuff that points forward to who Jesus is. So now I think it's just helpful for us uh, just to focus in and worship Jesus for being everything that Jonah, as we've seen him in the text today, isn't. We have communion set up on either side for us to come and take. So will you just join with me and pray, and then we'll just flow naturally into that. Jesus, we want to thank you so much for your word. Uh, that it's not uh, just the New Testament that teaches us about you, but that the whole Bible speaks your name, just as you said on the road to Emmaus. 
the prophets, uh, the history, the law, the Psalms, all of it just looks forward. It shows us, it points us to you, teaches us to praise you and lift you up. It shows us the king that we need over our lives. Thank you, Jesus, that you are not repelled by us. We deserve that. God, we deserve you just to be disgusted with what we're like. Lord, as much by our pride and our self-sufficiency as by our moral failure and our our sin. God, thank you. Jesus, thank you that you didn't just run when this whole plan to save us came to the point of fulfillment. You could so easily have just said, I don't want to do this. I want out. And yet you went in. You came and moved into our need. Jesus, thank you that you're praying for us. Even when we sleep, even when we're sleeping spiritually, when we're just kind of drifting, not being serious about it, not really getting after you. But God, you are crying out to the Father on our behalf, praying that we might wake up. Pray, Jesus, that the, the fruit of those prayers might be known in our lives. And we just thank you, God, that you have come into our lives to just transform us if we're willing, to transform our descent. Lord, that it doesn't have to be going down in flames if we're struggling, if we're falling. But Jesus, you have set a new representative in front of us in yourself. We don't have to be like Jonah. That if we are under you, even our failure, even our desert times can be times that are things that are used in your hands, things that are molded and shaped by you to make us the people that you would have us be. So Jesus, we worship you. That's so much the saviour that we need. We just pray that you would please help us to just embrace that saving love every day of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to respond.